Welcome to Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to Henry Galvis Portilla, geology PhD student at the University of Calgary in the Tight Oil Consortium. We'll be talking about Henry Galvis Portilla, Daniela Becerra Rondon, Per K. Penderson, and Roger M. Slots. Scientific article titled Multi-Scale Integration of Mudstone Properties in Interbedded Reservoirs, Insights into Additional Criteria for Evaluating Unconventional Reservoirs, Examples from the Duvernay Formation in Alberta, Canada, and the Whitford Shale in Oklahoma, USA. Some highlights include comparing the Duvernay Organic Rich Facies and the Whitford Mudstone Facies, and contrasting these with the Calcite-Rich Duvernay Facies and the Whitford Chert Facies. We're rocking out today with Henry Galvis Portella. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Hi, Henry, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Maureen. Thanks a lot, you know, for inviting me today. I'm very glad to be here uh, sharing a bit of our research at the university about the geology of unconventional reservoirs. So in your study, you took a detailed look at the Duvernay Formation and the Woodford Formation down in the U.S. And what you found was that there's two main faces in each one and that the mudstone matrix and fractures were really a key control to the well performance. And the more heterogeneous interbedded reservoirs, they have more complex fracture networks. So do you think heterogeneity plays a big role in these formations or what is the what are your thoughts on the heterogeneity yeah you know essentially the 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 reasoning behind that statement is that uh, not all faces in unconventional shale reservoirs are equally porous and not all faces are permeable and also not all faces are naturally fractured so what we what we have claimed in, in the paper is that the petrophysical and the geomechanical properties are highly dependent on the small scale variations in lithology, particularly the variations that occurred from bed to bed at the centimeter scale. You know, for example, uh, when, we, when, when we look at rocks from outcrops or well cores, we, we notice that most of these unconventional rocks, like the Duvernay and the Woodford, they consist of a monotonous alternation between two or three or maybe four different faces at the bed scale. And this is what we have described here as the inner bedded character of the reservoirs. So now or what I think is or becomes more or really interesting about this interbedding of the, of the unconventional reservoirs is that uh, some of these faces um, act as the microhydrocarbon source rock with very high organic contents, very high TOCs in fact, while other faces or the adjacent faces, uh, they act as micro reservoirs with a lot more interparticle porosity, with higher permeability, and also with more uh, abundant natural fractures, natural uh, fracture porosity, for example. So basically, when we say again that the modstone matrix and the fractures together are a key control on, on the well performance. Uh, uh, is because it's essentially that you know we are bringing up the observations, the observation of the interbedding, the interbedding uh, 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 where you know some phases provide the storage capacity in the matrix in the form of organic porosity and interparticle porosity, 
while other phages adjacent to these previous ones, they provide the natural fractures. So we th if we think, you know, uh, ideally with the, with the hydraulic fracturing, uh, what we want to achieve is some sort of connectivity between the modsum matrix and the natural fractures. So I would say that we could expect that intervals with both elements, the matrix and the fractures, they will become, they are the ones that become the better performance in the, in the subsurface. Yeah. So both the Duvernay and the Woodford, they have these centimeter scale interbedded facies where some of them are more porous, higher TOC, more fractured, and they have some variations. And so you really see that interbedded nature in both of them. How else would you say that the two formations are similar? Yeah, I would say, you know, at a, at a very high level, I would say that the main similarity between the two formations is that both are uh, self-sourced reservoirs, which means that the, the present-day hydrocarbons were generated and got also stored within the same formation. In other words, you know, the hydrocarbon fluids within these formations have undergone very short distance migrations within the same formation. In, you know, in literature from uh, organic geochemistry, uh, this type of hydrocarbons are also known as indigenous or in situ hydrocarbon fluids. Basically, your reservoir uh, is the source, but also the, 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 the reservoir of the hydrocarbons. And that's the main similarity between the Woodford and the Duvernay. They are self-sourced and conventional reservoirs. Now, the second, I think the second, uh, similarity between the Duvernay and the Woodford is that both formations were uh, deposited in shallow marine conditions during major sea level transgressions in the, in the late Devonian. So when we look at, uh, at the type of organic matter, for example, in the two formations, both of these reservoirs have similar type two kerogen, mainly consisting of marine algae and, and phytoplankton. So that's, I would say that's a, a second similarity. But now I guess what is more relevant on, on what was more relevant for this study is that the, the, there is a similarity in uh, between two formations and it was the inner bedded character at the small scale. Actually, when I started working on the, on the Woodford back in 2015, I looked at several cores and outcrops and the very, very first impression I got was was on how monotonous it was, the Woodford was in terms of lithology variations. For example, in the, the Woodford shale in the Armour Basin in, in Oklahoma, uh, uh, we, have that, uh, we have a very, very typical alternation, lithological alternation between silicious mudstones and cherts, right? In that basin, in the Armour Basin in Oklahoma, we, found we, we had continuous sections of 90 or 100 meters thick where the wood for is entirely characterized by this alternation between the silicious mudstones and cherts. Now, in the case of the wood for the silicious mudstones are the organic rich and porous faces, whereas the cherts have, uh, are the faces that have the a lower primary porosity, lower TOC. However, what is unique for the uh, chert Tibet in the Woodford is that they present the higher amount of natural fractures. So natural fractures in the Woodford are highly restricted to these charity beds. So that's for the Woodford. Now, what, what, what is similar to the Woodford in the Duvernay is that the Duvernay at a very high level, again, a, with a, using a simplified lithology classifications, uh, the Duvernay consists of two main rock types. We have 
the calcareous mudstones and the limestones. The calcareous mudstones in the Duvernay, for example, uh, have very high TOC contents and they also tend to preserve better the interparticle porosity than better than in the carbonate-rich limestone beds. Uh, what makes the limestone beds in the, in the Duvernay unique, I would say, is that they tend to preserve, they tend to have higher amounts of uh, natural fractures. So the main similarity between the two formations is that uh, uh, although different in lithology and although different in composition, these two formations, uh, we could say that they are similar in the vertical arrangements of two main facies. Particularly, we have the alternation of the siliceous mudstones in the, and cherts in the Woodford and the alternations of uh, calcareous mudstones and limestones in the Duvernay. Yeah. So both formations, um, you can almost look at the two different faces as analogs. You know, in the Duvernay, you have this limestone um, portion, whereas in the Woodford, you have a chert portion, and those are the more fractured ones um, with a little bit lower TOC. And in both, they have the mudstones, and both have the beds alternating throughout the formation. So you really have a great analog and you can kind of take a look between the properties of porosity and hardness between the two and see that there's some similarities. So that's a great comparison there, good, uh, good additional way of looking at it. So how would you say that they're different? Yeah, I think, you know, there are several differences between the two formations, but I guess the main one is, the, is in the mineralogical composition. For example, in the Duvernay, the calcite content is the main driver of lithological variability, whereas in the Woodford quartz is the main driver of this variability from bed to bed. So going to, to back to the example of the Duvernay, calcite can be as low as 10 or 15% in the mudstone facies, in the calcareous mudstone facies, or it could be as high as 80 or 90% in the limestones. So essentially, this range of lithophages in the Duvernay is due to variations in calcite content. That's for the Duvernay. Now, when you look at the Woodford, the calcite contents are, I would say, negligible. They are very, very low. They are generally lower than 10 or even 5% in most cases. But what is different in the Woodford is that the main driver of this lithological variability is quartz. We have variations of uh, between 40 to 50% of quartz in the siliceous mudstone beds, up to 90 or 95% of quartz content in the charity beds. So that's, I think that's one of the differences between the Woodford and the, and the Duvernay. The second, uh, I would say, second differences between the two reservoirs, uh, I would say it is in the type of bed contacts between the, the facies. In the Woodford, for example, uh, most contacts, most of these bed contacts between the siliceous mudstones and the charity beds are sharp and planar. I often say, you know, in the form, in, in the form of an analogy that the deposition of these two faces in the Woodford might have been like a binary system or like a light switch. For some time, the siliceous mudstone, the silicious, the siliceous mudstones dominated. And then for some time, the siliceous chair, the, the charity beds dominate. And the expression of that is in the very, very sharp bed contacts between these two faces in the Woodford. Now, what is different in the Duvernay is that uh, the occurrence or is, is the occurrence, actually the occurrence of more gradual or transitional changes 
between the two main fishes. So we have gradual changes from mudstones uh, grading into limestones. According you know, to what I've seen in the, in the east shell basin of, in the Duvernay, uh, we have variable degrees uh, of diagenetic modifications. For example, we, have a, we could have mudstone beds with very little calcite cementation at the base. And these beds are followed upwards by gradual increases in their calcite content, in, in, their, in their calcite cement content, up to making a completely recrystallized limestone bed on top of this underlying bed. So in the, depending on the, on, the, on the degree of diagenetic modifications in the Duvernay, we may have gradual changes in calcite cement. So that's one of the causes of a transitional changes from mudstones into limestones. Another example of gradual bed contacts in the Duvernay is, I think is expressed in the, in the variable degrees of biturbation as well. We have seen, this is very common in the Duvernay to have variable degrees of biturbation, especially in the East Shale Basin. So we have, for example, we have, bed, we have a contact between completely non-biturbated mudstones at the base, grading in intervals of four or five centimeters into completely biturbated and recrystallized limestones. So from a, from a depositional perspective, I think, the Duvernay changes in paleoenvironmental conditions were more gradual and are also, you know, represented by gradual changes from bed to bed, right? Which is a lot different than in the, that, than the changes we interpret from the Woodford. In the Woodford, all the changes in, uh, uh, from bed to bed are sharp and planar. Yeah, I think those are the, the main differences between the two formations. Well, that's a really in interesting observation, the gradational changes versus the sharper changes. Um, I know you mentioned one of the things that divides the Duvernay was that it's surrounded by reefs and infilling the low, whereas the Woodford wasn't. Do you think um, some of the depositional environments, such as the reefs surrounding it, contribute to that change? Or what geological feature would explain that, do you think? Yes, you know, I think the, it has to do mostly with the frequency of the, of, the, of the external factors. For example, in the Woodford, we have that the, most of the, most, uh, the, the, um, the depth of the position of the Woodford was a little bit more deeper than the Duvernay, below the storm uh, wave base, below the oxygen minimum zone, zone. So I think because of that, we have less influence from external factors, right? So we have more influence for chemically stratified changes in the water column. Uh, what is different in the Duvernay is that we have more influence from a chemical, a biochemical activity, you know, from sewers. Also we have a activity from the debris flow beds, you know, coming from the reefs into the basin floor in the Duvernay. So I think it's, uh, the Duvernay is a lot more complex in terms of uh, superpositions of biological and physical uh, processes. Whereas in the Woodford, we have a dominant signal of chemically stratified basin. That makes a lot of sense. So one of the things that you looked at to gather this information was the outcrop. You also used wireline logs and cores. And this is how you were able to identify the lithology and mudstone uh, differences in compositional analysis. Can you go through the methods that you used here? 
Yeah, you know, Maureen, I think it's, uh, I love to talk about this because uh, a big part of my research uh, at the university for the past few years have been, on, have been working on integrating uh, outcrops and well core data. So, you know, uh, to talk about the data sets, uh, uh, particularly for these studies, uh, we started always by examining at outcrops or looking at outcrops. We consider that outcrops are ideal in this regard because naturally they highlight the contrast in lithology and mineralogical composition from bed to bed. Uh, and this is what we call the weathering profile of sedimentary successions, commonly rocks or beds that are that have higher quartz content and higher calcite contents, they behave more competent to weathering. So these type of beds essentially stand out from the outcrop. And contrary to that, we have beds, with beds that, are, that have more clay content and more organic content. These type of beds, they behave softer or more susceptible to weathering. So we consider that outcrops are ideal to pick up this type of uh, heterogeneity because naturally you can see the weathering profile between the two type of, of, of phases. So we start from outcrops. I would say that without performing in, in, the, in the two cases, in the Woodford as well as in the, the Duvernay, without performing any compositional analysis, right in the outcrop we are able to distinguish the contrast between the cherts and the siliceous mudstones in the Woodford and in the Duvernay, we were able to distinguish the contrast between the calcareous mudstones and the limestone. So that was the very first step to capture that heterogeneity from the outcrop. The next set of techniques is once we identified this type of interbedded in the, interbedding in the outcrop, next step is to collect samples for further refinement in the, in the lab. So in the lab, we have used techniques such as a handheld XRF for elemental composition and XRD for mineralogical composition. So when we put together these two techniques, uh, this can give us more information or more detailed quantitative information about the mineralogical variability from bed to bed. Now that's the work that we do for mineralogical composition from outcrop samples. Now what happens in cores, particularly with uh, fresh cores, fresh well cores, is that the weathering profile is not a proxy for us anymore because Fresh cores are, uh, all you see is a slapped surface between mudstones and chairs or between calcareous mudstones and, and the limestones. So it is very hard to see contrast or mechanical contrast between the two main phases. So what we have been doing in course is to run XRF, continuous profiles of XRF for elemental composition at every four or every five inches. And then we can make vertical plots of the major elements. So when you do the vertical plots or vertical profiles of silicon or aluminum or calcium or magnesium, something like that, uh, we can very quickly pick, pick up where the cherts are or where the siliceous mudstones are in the Woodford or where the calcareous mudstones are or where the, where the limestones are in the Duvernay, right? So that's, that's the way we work with, with, with well cores in order to pick up the, the variability. Now, something that I would like to maybe highlight here is that in the Duvernay, the description of well cores, I think is, is a lot easier than in the Woodford. And the reason for that is because the calcite rich beds in the Duvernay, the color of these calcite rich beds is, is much lighter in, uh, than the calcareous mudstones. So in reality, you know, in the, in the Duvernay, there is not too much need to 
to run these continuous XRF profiles for picking, for picking up the contrast because the contrast in mineralogical compositions are highlighted by changes in color. This is not the case of the Woodford. In the Woodford, you see all you know, this black to dark gray uh, interbedding, but it's not highlighted as in the Duvernay. Yes. So essentially, because you took the samples from the core and you took the samples from the outcrop and you did the same measurements on them, you were able to get a really good feel for what parameters went with each facies across the formation and get some nice averages. So now you can take that and you can apply it to color changes in the Duvernay. And you don't necessarily need to do as much XRF or XRD work. Um, which is really neat to be able to just utilize your eye there. I know you also took a look at the brittleness and the hardness. Um, what kind of methods did you use for those? Oh yeah, actually that's, a, that's, a, that's another proxy that we have been using for uh, geomechanical properties. We, are, we have been using the micro hardness. These are very, I would say, inexpensive technique and non-destructive technique. So we have been using the micro hardness in order to get a profile of a relative hardness. So we could uh, easily identify the less stiff versus the stiffer rocks, you know, stiffer beds with these micro hardness techniques. The principle of measurement of this technique is, is that it measures the amount of rebound after a force is applied on the core slab or on the sample uh, surface, right? So depending on the amount of rebound, a softer rock or a ductile rock will have a less amount of rebound, whereas a harder rock or a more brittle rock, rock like, a, like a chert or like a limestone, the amount of rebound will be much larger. So based on this uh, relationship between rebound before and after uh, impact, right, the, uh, you can make some interpretations of the relative hardness, mechanical contrast between, from bed to bed. And then once we have uh, this relative hardness, for example, another calibration or correlation we could make is with rock mechanical tests, for example, from properties from uniaxial or properties from triaxial tests. So you can make empirical correlations between the mechanical hardness and a Young's modules or unconfined progressive strength, for example, from the from uniaxial tests. Yes. So when you were getting the geomechanical measurements as well as the lithology measurements, did you find there were any limitations to your sampling? Oh yeah, that's a very good question. We have seen that uh, depending on the lab technique, there are you know, limitations may vary, but, but here the one that I, that I would like to highlight, which was the most important for us was for the geomechanical testing, as, as you said, uh, on these interbarrier reservoirs. And Commonly, you know, for rock mechanics, there is something, the, the integrity, the preservation, and the specific dimensions of the core plaque are extremely important. And the real problem with that is that in the Woodford and in the Duvernay, there are some faces, some faces that are intrinsically very, very soft and fissile. For example, the siliceous mudstones and the calcareous mudstones, they are soft and fissile. So just by trying to extract a core plaque from these faces, the rock fails. The main reason for that is the presence of laminations within these faces. The presence of laminations are planes of weakness through which the rock can fail. So at the end, all we got, if we try to extract a core plaque from these faces, all we got at the end is little disc or little 
flakes of rocks that are by no means suitable for, for geomechanical testing. So that's, that's, that was the main limitation. Now, on the other hand, the main limitation for, for the softer rocks, but what we, what we also have, something that we have observed, for example, is that when we try to extract blocks from, from limestones, for example, or from charity beds in the Woodford, they are ideal for block extraction because they are massive, they are more competent. And what we have seen is that faces of this type, competent faces, are the ones that are only tested. And they are commonly reported in literature. So in my opinion, I think that is uh, given the limitations on the sample integrity and sample dimensions, in some cases, we never get to test the full spectrum of faces. So some properties like the geomechanical parameters will be overestimated in cases where you only extract the same faces, right? Or properties will be underestimated in cases where you don't have enough control points or you don't have enough sample of some faces, like, for example, the silicious mudstones or the calcareous mudstones. Now, something, uh, having said that, something that, that we have been doing in order to mitigate this lim limitation, as I mentioned earlier, is that we, we, we are trying to establish empirical relationships between uh, results from triaxial and uniaxial tests with uh, non-destructive techniques, such as the micro-hardness, for example. So with the micro-hardness or with the micro-indentation, we are able to establish empirical correlations between a triaxial dynamic result and results from samples with, of two or three centimeters in length. So that's something that we could do in order to, to overcome this type of limitation in the, in the sampling. So the core plugs really could be quite biased towards the more limestone-rich and chert-rich hayseeds and underrepresentative of the mudstone. So you need to actually go and take a look and see visually that the right uh, thin beds are being accounted for when you do the sampling. And if you're the operator, you can see that. But if you just pick up a different report, a little bit more investigation is going to be required to know what the people actually were sampling. So in the softer beds, you did mention uh, in the mudstone that it often has higher TOC content than the other faces, the limestones and the cherts. What would you say the significance of having more TOC in these beds would be? Yes, I think he's, I would go a little bit maybe backwards, like what controls the TOC and the association of the TOC with other parameters. And I would say the main influence on the, on the TOC and the petrophysical properties, I think is on the rock fabric, micro rock fabric of these faces. And what we found is that, uh, you know, rock fabric is, is very different, not only between the two formations and different between the two main faces on each formation. So the rock fabric and the petrophysical properties between the two formations was different. And this led to different TOC amounts. In the Woodford, it was higher than in the Duvernay. What was the significance of all of this? Yeah, I think uh, that's correct. The uh, rock fabric and petrophysical properties are uh, different between the two formations. But not only that, rock fabric is also different between the two rock types of within each formation. So we have examined uh, the microfabric of using uh, petrographic techniques mainly, using a standard thin section petrography and the scanning electron SEM or SEM. So using these techniques, it was, it was clear for us that 
there is a variety of pore types with different dimensions, with, which are mainly influenced by variations in the rock fabric. Generally, you know, using the petrographic techniques, we, we found that the calcareous mudstones in the Duvernay and the siliceous mudstones in the Woodford, they present better interparticle porosity, for example. Internally, we observed that these facies show the, the calcareous mudstones and the siliceous mudstones. They, internally, they show a poorly sorted microfabric with a broad range of mineral sizes, from clay-sized minerals or aggregates up to sealed-sized components of detrital uh, quartz, detrital calcite, and detrital dolomite. So that was one observation on the inorganic components. Now, the other observation of the microfabric of these uh, siliceous mudstones and calcareous mudstones is that their cementation degree is very, very minimal. So in fact, when you observed at the, at the micrometer or nanometer scale, you can get to see the grain-to-grain -grain contacts, and these contacts are quite clear of cements. So that's why the preservation of interparticle porosity is so good within the mudstones, right? So that was one observation. Now, another, I would say, very, very important component in, on the, of, of the microfabric, which uh, has an effect on or significance on the petrophysical properties, porosity within the organic matter. In this case, depending on the thermal maturity, the porosity of the siliceous mudstones or the calcareous mudstones could be enhanced by the porosity within the organic matter. So in this, in this part, I think uh, we need to remember that the siliceous mudstones in the Woodford and the calcareous mudstones in the Duvernay, they are the facies that uh, have the highest TOC contents. So what I would think is that with increased thermal maturity, we might expect an increase as well in the porosity within the organic matter, particularly within these facies, the siliceous mudstones in the Woodford and the calcareous mudstones in the Duvernay, which are the ones with the, with the higher TOC contents. So that's why we say that the microfabric and the TOC contents can influence the resultant petrophysical properties. Now here also I have to mention that in terms of microfabric, not all types of uh, microfabric uh, favor the petrophysical properties. We have seen, for example, that excessive, very, very high calcite cement contents high contents of autogenic quartz may kill or occlude the interparticle porosity. For example, in the Duvernay, the calcite that occurs as a pore-filling cement occludes the interparticle pores. In the Woodford, in the church, the autogenic and the biogenic quartz occludes uh, the, or kind of well put together this microcrystalline matrix. So basically, the primary porosity is being reduced, significantly reduced under the presence of cements, right? Yeah, it's a good point that the TOC really helps keep the pores open, whereas in the other facies where there's less TOC, it's a lot more cemented because you don't have that same open nature of the pores. So you actually see higher porosity in the higher TOC areas. You also mentioned, though, that on the flip side, within the limestones and the cherts, you see more fractures. So what were some of the geomechanical properties that you saw within these fractures? After the dominant impact of stresses, and of course, of stresses are the dominant factor on, fra on fractures, we observed that the abundance and distribution of natural fractures are a response of variations in mineralogy and bed thickness, particularly in these uh, two 
reservoirs. Generally, what we found is that uh, in the Duvernay and in the Woodford beds with higher calcite and with higher quartz content, they usually present the higher density of natural fractures. And interestingly here, the natural fractures in these, in these two formations, a lot of these natural fractures are bed bounded, meaning that the mechanical contrast from bed to bed are effective at containing the vertical growth of natural fractures. So for example, if you, if you have an alternation of limestones and calcareous mudstones, like in the Duvernay, fractures tend to be highly restricted and developed with higher densities, right? within the limestone beds. So basically the limestone beds are in the Duvernay are more susceptible to natural fractures due to the elevated contents of calcite, right? And similarly with the Woodford, for example, we, we have noticed that the natural fractures are highly restricted and are in fact very, very abundant in the charity beds. In the Woodford, uh, we completed a intensive work on the characterization of natural fractures in outcrops. From that study, we found that uh, there is a ratio to describe the abundance of natural fractures between the cherts and the mudstones. And the ratio was about seven to one, meaning that for every seven fractures in the cherts, only one fracture is present in the siliceous mudstone. So if we go back to the early statement of about self-source reservoirs and why the interbedded character is so important for reservoir performance, I think here is one of the reasons. We know that natural fractures are lithology dependent and bed thickness dependent. So I think the more interbedded, or what we found is that the more interbedded the reservoir, the more mechanical contrast exists. And so more natural fractures we may got. The Woodford and in the Durne, we have five uh, natural fractures along scan lines in beds of multiple thicknesses. And the relationship we obtain is a negative relationship where a negative relationship between the natural fractures and the bed thickness, meaning that the thinner the beds, the more natural fractures, or the thicker the beds, the less amount of natural fractures. So I would say that for operators, if the goal is to target intervals with increased amount of natural fractures, ideal candidates would be to target intervals with thinner interbedding because that's what we have observed. The thinner the interbedded or the thinner the bed thickness, the increase is the number of natural fractures. So the thinner the beds, the better reservoir it potentially could be. And you also talked about heterogeneity and whether or not that was good for the reservoir. It's one of those things that's a little bit of a debate. The more heterogeneity, the more complex the fracture network. You didn't really wind up saying which one was better, more or less heterogeneity, but you did have a good way to capture how much heterogeneity there was statistically. There's a really good chart here showing a histogram. Do you want to elaborate on the statistical expressions and kind of the way that you took a look at the statistics of how heterogeneous it is? Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting very interesting question, actually, because I think uh, as a geologist myself, you know, I tend to be very descriptive and we use a lot of qualitative terminology to describe a variable. For example, we say highly interbedded, thinly interbedded, thickly interbedded. However, you know, when, we, when it comes to communicate with engineers, this is not really useful, I would say, because they want us to provide numbers that later become inputs for 
simulation or modeling or something like that, right? So in fact, what I've seen in recent years is that actually many of these fracture simulators or fracture modeling software, they actually accept numbers for heterogeneity index or lamination index, which are, which are also variables that can be used to account for the degree of interbedding or to the degree of heterogeneity. So what we proposed in the paper or, uh, is that there is a very simple statistical expression to quantify the degree of interbedding in, the, in, in these reservoirs. And it is based on the uh, standard deviation divided by the number of beds. And it's shown in the paper as a histogram, which shows the entire distribution, right? So if we compute the standard deviation of any given variable, for example, the calcite content or the TOC content through the vertical, if we compute the standard deviation in different windows along your core data or along your uh, core, uh, uh, outcrop data, a large number of standard deviation means that there are highly contrasting values in calcite from bed to bed in, within your interval. And a small number of standard deviation means that the contrast in calcite or the contrast, for example, in micro hardness or the contrast in TOC or any variable, right? The contrasts are very subtle and likely you are in the same phases all the time, right? So using the, this basic expression of a standard deviation, we could get an idea on how variable or how heterogeneous is the reservoir. A large number, more heterogeneous, a smaller number, less heterogeneous, right? So with the standard deviation divided by the number of beds, we can get, we, we can quantify the degree of interbedding. That's one way. Another example that I think is relevant to mention is in the lack of core data, for example, if we only have well logs and we want to quantify the degree of interbedding, there is a, there is a mathematical expression that detects every time your variable passes through a zero phase. So if, for example, you have a, a, a spectral gamma ray, you, the uranium signature from an spectral gamma ray, every time your variable passes through a zero phase, a zero phase in this case could be, for example, a baseline at 60 API or a, a, at 60 a, a parts per million, for example. So every time you have one intersection between your baseline and your variable, that would be one bad contact, right? So that would be another way, I, I think, to quantify interbedding in, the, in well logs when, when we don't have core or outcrop data. Using the well logs, you were able to pick up on some of these interbeds and laminations within the Duvernay and Woodford, which is difficult to do with it being so thin. And you did talk about there being another shale, the Eagleford, where the interbeds are a bit thicker and the well logs pick it up even more. So what did you think of the Eagleford versus the Duvernay versus the Woodford? And what other shales would you expect to see the two main faces alternating in? Yeah, that's, uh, well, that's interesting because uh, I've seen uh, in North America mainly the, you know, the Eagleford and the Niobrara. Those are the two main ones that are very similar in the type of interbedding between a softer type of rock, a harder type of rock. And some of them have differences also in, in the amount of natural fractures. But to be more specific, I think in the Eagleford, this is the ideal example because in the Eagleford we have the centimeter scale interbedding between the marlstones and the limestones. Marlstones in that case are the, one, the faces that have the higher, the higher TOC contents and also are slightly more ductile than the limestones. The limestones in the Eagleford, 
they are more brittle and they contribute more with a fracture porosity. So actually there is a very nice study on the, on the Eagle Fort on a few years ago where one operator quantified the ratio or the proportion of limestone beds versus marlstones and illustrated these ratios well by well in a map. So after correlation with production data, they basically they did the straight correlation between a proportion of limestone uh, alternations versus production. And the result, the result was that the higher initial production correlated or is associated to intervals with the higher amounts of alternations between the limestones and the marlstones. So I think it was quite significant to get this type of validation or correlation between a geological property, which is the intervariant, and the results on well performance expressed or represented in, in production. But, you know, to answer the second part of your question about the a difference on Eagle Ford, type of intervariant on the Eagle Ford and the type of intervariant in the Woodford, for example, I would say that in the Eagle Ford, the type of intervariant is a little bit thicker. So beds are in the range of 30 or 40 centimeters, the type of intervariant. So they are, I, I would say they are a lot easier to pick up with well logs as opposed to what happens or to what occurs in the, in the Woodford, for example. In the Woodford, most of the interbedding occurs uh, in intervals of four to five or six centimeters, right? So it is very challenging to pick up this type of uh, heterogeneity in the Woodford. In the Eagleford, I would say that's the main difference. Beds are thicker, so they are easier to quantify based on, on, on well logs data, for example. Just thinking along those lines, you mentioned the Eagleford study where it tied the interbeds to the production. You could almost use that as an analog because you have these ways to capture the degree of heterogeneity, um, the interbeds, the parameters of it. You could almost do the same thing between that Eagleford study comparing production and interbeds um, with the Duvernay or the Woodford. You didn't mention what it's on, but you are furthering your research and your studies and doing more detailed work. On this, what do you have coming up? What's the, what's the next step here that you're taking? Yes, I think that's a good question because, you know, I always, uh, whenever I present this type of uh, geological work to engineers, the very first question I got is, how can we prove this? Like, how can we prove the actual uh, outcome or the actual implication of having more interbedded versus less interbedded intervals. So I think in that direction, we are moving forward. We are trying to prove this with field data, with the engineers. So I've been working recently with some engineers on uh, simulation. They are basically simulating different scenarios of more interbedded, less interbedded, one single fracture, a, a branched type of fracture, something like that. So that's from the simulation point of view. Now, the second part, a more ambitious uh, work in the future would be to prove this, for example, with production data and completion data. So we can get maybe with defeat uh, results, we might get indications on how is the permeability around intervals with more interbedded, the permeability created around intervals with less interbedded properties, right? So I think it's, yeah, long story short, we want to prove this, or we want to validate this with engineering parameters. It sounds like a really interesting study that you're continuing on with this, and I'm definitely going to keep an eye out for the results of it to see how it turns out. I think it'll be quite fascinating. 
And even just going through this paper here on the DuVernay versus Woodford, I learned so much and I hope everyone out there listening did. So thank you very much, Henry, for sharing all your research with us. Oh, thank you very much, Mary. I'm very happy always, you know, to share what we do at the university. I feel that it is good to have this interaction with people outside our academic world. <laughs> so yes, thanks a lot. And thanks everyone for listening to us. Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.info or send us an email anytime at stoneconsultingcorp at outlook.com. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.